Now today we're not going to look at any passage in particular. We want to examine the structure of the letters, the seven letters, to the churches of Asia Minor. Those letters recorded in chapters 2 and 3. And as we examine that structure, we want to look for apparent symmetries and recursions and other reflections which may be parallel so that we have an understanding of what the form and style of the letters is. So if you have your Bibles open at chapter 2, we'll be looking at passages or verses in chapter 3 as well. And I'm actually going to have you read out some of these verses as we go. So when I call your name, just go ahead and read what we're looking for at that particular point. And is anybody hesitant and doesn't want to be called on to read? Just let me know. I'll I'll pass you by. All right. This is good. You don't want anything to pass you by, particularly the riches of the grace of Christ. All right. Clyde, can I have you read the first part of verse 1 of chapter 2? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Good, thank you. All right, now keep what you heard in mind, and let's look at verse 8. And Randy, could you read verse 8, just as far as Clyde read verse 1? To the angel of the church of Smyrna write. Very good, thank you. That's pronounced Smyrna. And verse and next, uh, Art, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Thank you. And... Marge, uh, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. Very good, thank you. And now over to chapter 3, verse 1. Loretta, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right. Very good. And uh, Ben, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. And finally, Elisa, verse 14 of chapter 3. Very good. All right, now you will notice that the formula was regular in almost each case. The only variation was what? The name of the church. So to the angel of X, and then fill in the X blank with the name of the church. Now this uh, pattern beginning with Ephesus and then going north to Smyrna and Pergamon, and then from Pergamon south to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, Laodicea. We've noted before, it's that kind of irregular geographical circuit, almost like a circle. But the pattern, which has been consistent since we read it initially in verse 11 of chapter 1, is now going to be uh, accompanied by an epistle. So an epistle is coming to those in this circuit if, in fact, Ramsey's suggestion that it was a courier route or a courier circuit is correct. <clears throat> That's debated. But at any rate, it gives us something to hold on to as to why this arrangement and why uh, this, these, this sequence 
is given here. Now, this formula has been called the adscription. Adscription comes from two Latin words, ad scribo, to write to. And so you see to the angel of the church, to the church, (coughs) uh, which is under this angel, so to speak. Now, that's not the first time we've seen adscription in an epistle. We've talked about this pattern in the epistles of Paul. But after Paul presents his adscription to the church at Corinth, to the church at Colossae, after Paul presents his adscription, does he stop with his kind of opening remarks? Well, no, he doesn't. If you may remember from our study of Colossians, he goes on to use other other, uh, patterns or other uh, literary or or epistolary forms, but they are not here. All we have of the epistolary form, which we're used to, particularly from Pauline epistles, is the abscription to the church of. There's no salutation here where Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you, which is his greeting or his salutation to the churches. There's nothing of that kind here. There's no thanksgiving here. Paul always says, I give thanks to God. All his epistles have that pattern in it, the adscription, the salutation, and the thanksgiving. There's a benedictory element there as well, a benediction when he says, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. But you'll notice that it's missing here. And in John's letters, there's nothing of that style either. So we're, we're dealing here with a unique epistolary or literary style. It has an adscription which is uh, <clears throat> replicated with the only variation being the name of the city or the church in the city, <clears throat> and that's the only point of contact which we have with the other uh, Pauline epistles. Now, this vexed question of the identity of the angel, the angel of the church of Ephesus, etc. Many have suggested that this is actually a way of talking about the pastors of those congregations or the chief uh, person in charge of preaching and worship. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it's as difficult as the commentators and some others make the question. I think the issue is parallel to what we find at the beginning of the book as a whole. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 1, you will notice that this revelation, which belongs to Jesus Christ, was given to him by God, and he has sent it by his angel to the bondservant John. Now notice that the angel by whom or through whom Jesus sends this revelation to John, is not identified, is not named. And that's precisely what we have here in the case of the seven churches. The angel is not named. It's an anonymous angel. He is communicating the revelation, which is to go to the church through John, the, shall we say, amanuensis, or the secretary of recording this revelation, 
so that you see that there is, in fact, a mirror relationship between the whole book coming to John by the instrumentality of an angelic messenger and these individual letters coming to those churches by the instrumentality of angelic messengers. <clears throat> the angel figure is essential to the supernatural arena, the supernatural character of the revelation itself. So that underscores the fact that this is coming out of the heavenly court, heavenly arena of God's own presence and his, his radiant and majestic glory presence. So the angels don't need to be identified. They don't need to be named. They're simply instruments from the purpose of communicating the revelation to John in verse, in chapter one with respect to the contents of the whole book and here in chapters two and three with respect to the contents of the epistles which were sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now that's by no means uh, an, an accepted interpretation of the angels, but I think it's the one that comports most consistently with the language of the first and second chapters as we're seeing how the angel becomes an instrument of communicating or instrument of being the messenger of the revelations of passing it on to John in each case. All right, any questions about that first element? Yes, Randy? Oh, this is my question, but I mean, the angel, if it's a paradigm of the church down through the ages, there needs to be an angel in order to preside over that thing down through the ages. A pastor can't do that. Does that make any sense? No, pastor can't do that, but uh, <clears throat> though these may be letters which are applicable to the situation of the church down through the ages, they were specifically directed to the churches of Asia Minor. Whatever ex extra significance they may have, uh, we'll have to talk about when we begin to look at them individually. <clears throat> so the, the, the angelic communication is specific to this instance of, reveal, of revealing this revelation to the churches through John's recording of their letters and dispatching them or sending them on their way. But angels do preside over churches down through the ages, don't they? Uh, <coughs> angels may be watching over churches down through the ages. I'm not sure that angels in the scriptures preside over churches down through the ages. This whole question of guardian angels, etc., is uh, that, that that would take a discussion in its own right. I don't believe in guardian angels. I don't think the scripture teaches it, but I certainly believe in angelic <coughs> instrumentation, angelic presence. But don't don't ask me to tell you where they are or how you'll know they're there. You don't need to know it really. <laughs> Your, your trust in the Lord is sufficient. And if he uses angels to help you, to help out in communicating his uh, support, etc., then that's all to the good. All right. Um, there is a, there is a, uh, a phrase in verse 20 of chapter 1 which indicates that we're dealing here with a bit of a, notice the word, mystery, the seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches, as that verse indicates. <clears throat> so this realm of the supernatural and mysterious and the way in which this communication is occurring is not the usual way of the communication of revelation. Generally speaking, God's revelation comes directly to the mind of the writer. Here, at least in these instances, it is coming through the instrumentality of angelic messengers carrying that message to the mind of the writer, in this case, the Apostle John. All right, now number two on your outline. Each city is addressed with the same imperative. We heard it in the reading. What was the imperative? Yes, the word right. Thank you, Ben. Each uh, phrase to the church of is followed by the imperative right. Now here there's one little annotation that we should observe because it is also consistent as far as the pattern of these letters is concerned, though you cannot see it very well in your English Bibles unless you have a King James. Does anybody have a King James with them today? That's all right. It's all right not to have a King James. But in this case, the King James actually does something very well that the other versions do not do well. Now, you'll notice at the end of verse 1 in chapter 2, the phrase says this. Now, that phrase, which would be better translated as the King James uh, says it, these things says, or these things saith, as the King James reads, and it comes after the imperative right. In the Greek text, in the order of which these elements of the structure of these letters is, is flowing out, is proceeding, is unfolding. <clears throat> the phrase in Greek, which means these things says, comes right after the word right. And the, your other translations don't translate that generally until the end of the statement of, <clears throat> of Jesus describing himself <clears throat> in verse 1, etc. So my point here is there's another little element of symmetry which is not properly treated by your English translations, though it's accurately translated, it's not properly treated in terms of its order, so you wouldn't see this unless you were able to read the Greek text. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> the most interesting part of this uh, structure, this study of the structure, is the identification of the speaker himself. Now, we wanted to see how he does it in each case to the church. So after the word right in verse 1, I'm going to ask Terry to read the rest of verse 1 of chapter 2. Thank you. All right, now, there is the self-identification of the speaker who is behind this revelation. 
namely the Lord Jesus himself. And we have seen those elements of self-description prior to this appearance in chapter 2, verse 1. Do you remember where we saw them before? Marge is nodding her head. Where did you see them before, Marge? 116 and 120. Very good. Actually, we can also go back up to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. So, the way that the communicator or the speaker is identifying himself is in terms of which he's already been identified to John himself. This repetition or duplication is significant. Now, as a footnote here, the uh, identifications will vary, unlike the adscription, which doesn't vary except for the name of the location. The self-identification phrases will vary. And the question to to raise is, why do they vary? What is the significance of the variation of the way in which Jesus identifies himself to each of the seven churches? Does it have something to do with the uniqueness of that church or its background? That intrigues me, and it is something that I want to spend some time thinking about uh, during the summer break. But at any rate, you have a difference. You have a significant variation, as we will see. We're going to read through all of these. <clears throat> we have a significant variation. The question is, why are those particular attributes or descriptions, in this case, the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Why is that the description that he uses for Ephesus? It's okay to ask questions like that. Whether the answers are satisfactory, that's another matter, but it's okay to ask questions like that. All right, now, as we turn to the next adscription, which was in verse 8 of chapter 2, Dick, could I have you read the ad script, the, the, the uh, material after the word right there in verse 8? The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Now, once again, that's not the first time we've read those words in this book. Where else did we find that? Verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter chapter 1. And also, verse 17 of chapter 1, first and last, one who was dead and has come to life. All right, so with respect to Smyrna, there is reference once again to this protological and eschatological paradigm and to the dead one now alive from the dead. Is that something peculiar to Smyrna's past, Smyrna's story? Once again, we want to struggle with that. I'm going to try to struggle with that over the summer. 
Now, Sandy, how about the the self-description in verse 12? Very good. And our question once again, have we seen that phrase, two-edged sword, before? Verse 16 of chapter 1, yes. All right, now you're getting a pattern, aren't you? We've seen in three of these instances that we're being referred by the self-descriptors character or characterization back to first to the to the first chapter. Alright? Now in verse eighteen, Cheryl, what do we have with respect to the self description in verse eighteen? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnish bronze. Now where have we seen that before? Uh, chapter one verse fourteen. Fifteen. Yeah, fourteen, fourteen, and fifteen. Right. Very good. <clears throat> All right. Now, uh, Robert, to chapter three, verse one. Read the self-description, please. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, where have we seen that before? That one's a little challenging. Bob? Um, the seven stars are listed in verse 20, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 20. Very good. What about the seven spirits? Where do we find that? Even the commentators miss this one, so many of them. Verse 4. Verse 4, chapter 1. Very good. All right, next. Robert Van Voorhis. Verse 7 of chapter 3. And the self-description there. church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Alright, now this is another one which is challenging. Where have we seen any of those phrases before? Anybody can make the suggestion. Actually, there's only one word there. It's not that uh, uh, some of the other forms 
uh, do not appear, but there's only one word there that goes back to the self-description of chapter 1. That's the word, that's the word key, right. Keys of death and Hades or hell is more accurately, should be accurately translated. Chapter 1 verse 18. And finally, to Laodicea, okay, chapter 3 verse 14, the self-description there. Did she hear you? She didn't. I can't do it. You can't do it, okay. Uh, did I leave anybody out? Well, we got everybody. I, I got Cheryl, didn't I get you, Cheryl? Yeah, you got yeah, me. I thought I got everybody. Okay, Clyde, back to you. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now that's again, this is another interesting one. A little bit challenging. Where have we seen any of those phrases before? I didn't hear you, Mark. I was going to pick up with this in verse 2, but maybe not. No, I don't think so. Yes, there you are. <clears throat> verse 5, faithful witness. That's as close as we get uh, to faithful and true witness. What about that expression, the amen? Back in chapter 1, we've got two amens, don't we? End of verse 6, end of verse 7. Isn't that parallel to what we have here? Well, it's the same word, but is it a parallel explanation? Is it a parallel use? Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Yeah, what, what, what's different about the appearance in chapter 3, verse 14? What's, what's been done to the amen there? It's been personified, correct. That's the word I was looking for. Identified with the speaker, making him a personal amen. And there are only two places in the Bible where this occurs. It occurs here 
And it occurs in verse 11 of chapter 19 when the rider on the white horse is called faithful and true, the word of God, the Amen. So we know from the rest of Revelation that there is a parallel support for our identifying here in 314 a personification of the Amen. The Amens in chapter 1 at 6 and 7 are expressions of exclamation, expressions of conclusion, expressions of fait accompli, it's a done deal, etc. So they're not personified. They're elements of worship. They're elements of recognition and adoration. All right, as we step away then from this part of the structural pattern, we notice that there is variation. There is always a self-identification by the speaker, who is our Lord Jesus, the post-resurrection, glorified, ascended, seated at the right hand of glory, Lord Jesus. But he identifies himself in different aspects of what he has already used in chapter 1 with respect to John, identifies himself with different aspects of his character and his personification as he moves from one church to the other, from one city to the other. Is that theologically or exegetically significant? That's the $64,000 question, and I'll ponder that along with you, maybe, over the summer months. All right, any question about the point we've reached in our pattern of structuring the seven letters? All right, over to page two of your handout. We've had the adscription. We've had the imperative. We've also had these things say, which is not regularly in the more modern English translations. And we've had the self-identification. What's the next element that we find? I'm going to have you look for a while and scan the letters and see if you can pick out the next element. He knows. I know. The I know phrase, yes. You'll notice it in verse 2 of chapter 2, following immediately upon his self-identification. You'll find it in verse 9 of chapter 2, following his self-identification to the church at Smyrna. Also in verse 13 of chapter 2, to Pergamon. Verse 19 of chapter 2, to Thyatira. To uh, verse 1 again in uh, chapter 3, because it's put together with the self-identification as a continuing clause, not a distinctive verse. And verse 8 of chapter 3 to Philadelphia, and finally verse 15 of Laodicea chapter 3. Now this is suggestive about something in the character of the speaker. 
what would this suggest about his character? Yes, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the story of the church, the details of that record. He knows what they have been about. He knows about their activity. He is all-knowing or omniscient. All right, now, the central section of each letter, that is beyond this uh, I know part, begins to develop the most extensive section of each of the letters. Here's where the meat of the letters or the meat of the message of the letters is found. Now, we're not going to go into detail. We want to recognize that this is, shall we say, the the substantive or meaty part of each of the seven epistles. But what is present in this meaty part are the details of the city history and details of the church history and activity. A narrative history of the city's story and a narrative history of the church's story. This is the contribution that Sir William Ramsey made to the understanding of these seven letters. Namely, you had to understand the archaeology and historical background of each of the seven cities in order to understand the use of the language and imagery which is used in the letters. That principle, I think, is essentially sound. And when we begin to look at the seven letters individually and particularly, we'll try to draw attention to those historical and also ecclesiastical elements in each of the seven cities. So part of the uniqueness, then, of the self-identification of Christ is connected or linked to or interfaces with the uniqueness of the story of each of the cities and the uniqueness of the story of each of the churches in the cities. There's something different. Yes, they are all churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all churches that have been established by the gospel of the saving gospel of our Savior. But there are differences in which that gospel has been received and how it's been applied and how it's been practiced. Even as there's the sameness that all these cities were cities of Asia Minor, they were all cities affected by the Greco-Roman Renaissance, they're all cities subject to the Roman Caesars, but there are differences amongst these cities. So the meat of the letters is going to focus on the similarities and the distinctive differences which separate these cities and the churches in them. And we'll try to make that clear as we explain and penetrate into the meaning of each of the seven letters. Yes, Ben. Now, when you talked about churches in those cities, are we thinking of a particular congregation in each city, or are there more than one, in it, or is it not like the modern situation? I don't know how to answer that one except to suggest that I don't think there's any reason for suspecting that there may be more than one congregation in the city. There may be only one, but there may be more than one. There may be preaching spots or other smaller churches around the edge of the city. Ephesus in particular was a huge city even in, in its day here. 
<coughs> and uh, we've seen, even in Colossae, which is near Laodicea, that there are churches in the area. So as far as the city is proper, I don't see any reason why there may not be more than one. But on the other hand, I can't, I can't answer it definitively. There might, may only be one central congregational unit. We know, as a backup, we actually do know that there were many congregations in the city of Rome, even at this period, more than one. In fact, there were there are some that estimate there were more than a hundred of them. Yes, Randy. Did we already determine that all seven of those cities are located in what is now Syria? No, it's modern-day Turkey. Remember, remember your little map of Asia Minor? What is now Turkey? Yes, correct. Western Turkey. In the province of what was called in the Roman Empire the province of Asia. And we, we refer to it, we refer to the whole country as Asia Minor. Alright, now, the conclusion to the letters. Each letter concludes with an appeal. What is that concluding appeal? Repent. Repent. <laughs> uh, that's not present in every one of them. <laughs> yes, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a regular patterned conclusion, which you will find in each of those verses listed on your handout. Now, that's a bit of a warning or a bit of a uh, an admonition. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That wouldn't be the uh, nicest way to uh, to end each letter. So, uh, what encouragement is included at the end of each letter? Not necessarily the last thing, but included in the concluding or ending remarks. What phrase do you see there at the end, towards the end of every one of them? To him who overcomes. Yes, the overcomers. To him who overcomes. And then there's followed a promise or an acknowledgement of a future blessing. So each letter contains this gracious extension of a promised blessing to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God in verse 7 of chapter 3. To not be overcome by the second death in verse 11 of chapter 2 and so on. So, as there's a an admonition or a warning to let him who has ears to hear what the Spirit says. So there's an encouragement of a promised blessing to the future of uh, those who are faithful in the church. Now this word that is translated overcome in the Greek is a participle. It comes from the Greek word nikao. 
And that's related to the Greek word Nike, which we translate Nike. Not the proper pronunciation of it, but the Greek pronunciation is Nike. And what does Nike mean? Victory. Means victory as first John five four tells you for the word Nike occurs in first John five four in uh, and is translated as victory. Yeah, that's the reason that the sports goods company took that title. Really? Uh, yes, because it was related to the Greek word for victory. Wow. Does that mean the shoes are victorious? Yuck, yuck. That's what they're advertising. <laughs> no, that actually was a word which was used in a marathon, the, origin, the original Greek marathon, when the, the messenger gave the uh, message of the triumph of the Greek army and fell down dead as at the end of so the tradition writes. He said one word and died after having run about 26 miles as we measure it by marathon standards today. But Nikkei is not fall down dead and that's the end of the story for the Christian. Nikkei is an everlasting victory. <clears throat> All right, now there you have set out this very interesting pattern, sevenfold pattern, as you note, leaving out the little, uh, these things, says or says, sevenfold pattern for seven churches, sevenfold pattern for seven congregations, sevenfold pattern for seven cities. Well, I'm not pushing that too far, but the point is the fullness of the revelation uh, which Christ wants to make to the churches of Asia Minor is given completely, plentifully here in seven types of structural elements to each letter to each of the churches. The variations are adapted to the circumstances and situations of the congregations themselves this pattern of symmetry and regularity. You can see it very well here. Uh, we've already we've already worked on that in these sessions on various other books of the Bible, looking for these patterns of similarity, regularity, reflection, uh, reverse imaging, etc. So here you come in, you, you encounter it again in a place where you wouldn't necessarily expect it in seven written letters. Any questions? That's all I have for this session. I'll take any question about anything else you may have of related interest. We have a few minutes before you can go to get your refreshments. When I assume that it was intended that these uh, would circulate to all churches so that even though it's talking about one church or one city that it would be read in all the congregations. I think that that assumption is uh, is valid because we know that the Apostle Paul wanted his letter to the Colossians read in Hierapolis and in Laodicea. So this pattern of passing in the round is present with respect to Paul's epistles in this area. So why not the same pattern to these other churches 
that they would also read what had been sent to their brother, their sister congregations. That is one uh, one reason why the scriptures were gathered into codices and papyri and so on. <clears throat> they were put together uh, so that others could read the same thing that had been sent to uh, a particular congregation. So that we get copies starting to spread around. And finally, by the end of the first century, we've got a complete New Testament codex. Or by very early into the second century, we've got a complete codex. I think, I think it's complete by the end of the first century, but I don't, I don't have a copy from it. We do have a copy of a very early manuscript with dates about 150. It's very, almost complete New Testament. But you, you get the idea. They're, they're compiling it. They're putting it all together, all the, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Epistles, the Epistles from Paul and Peter and John, <coughs> Jude, etc. <coughs> and finally, the Book of Revelation, uh, which, uh, <coughs> which was a little bit uh, touchy for a while, but they finally concluded that it had John's imprimatur upon it, and so they added it to the end of the New Testament corpus. It's important to to your faith that that what you have here was gathered and put together and preserved. Now, God superintended the process, as our confession indicates. But nonetheless, he needed a a lot of work (laughs) and a lot of copiers to do so. Remember, this is not Xerox material. They don't copy this off and then send it off. You don't send it by fax. You have to print this out by hand. You have to write it out by hand. And uh, this, the <coughs> preservation of some of those manuscripts, particularly that uh, <coughs> papyrus manuscript from about 150 or 170 A.D., that's remarkable, remarkable providence. Randy. So when did the redactions kind of begin? Then, or oh, what do you mean by redactions? You mean the editing of the Greek text? Yeah, that, that comes as that becomes a convention. And the variations, the actual changes in words that are mistakes or additions which shouldn't have been added, that's, that's lower criticism called textual criticism. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the, those elements don't alter any essential uh, Christian doctrine, any essential biblical or even evangelical or reformed doctrine. Yeah. That, but when did they start doing that? Did you, quite a bit later, or yeah, I'll go back to my statement. Whenever those, whenever those conventions became accepted, in other words, whenever that was what the culture was doing, then they began to do it. But you look at this Greek manuscript from about 150, as as it's dated by uh, uh, Philip Comfort, and you look at that huge New Testament manuscript, and there's no punctuation in it. But you you have to understand that that that, if, that the phrase stops or the the grammar stops, and so you get the sense of it. Obviously, you're using a modern uh, version or a modern New Testament Greek text to help you with that. But uh, that, that those conventions became conventional sometime. That I and I can't answer that particularly with respect. The grammar was what was commonly used throughout the civilization. Yes. Yes. Before punctuation became a, a grammatical necessity or grammatical 
uh, 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 practice. So Aristotle and them, they never used any punctuation either? I don't think so. I've never seen an original Greek text of Aristotle and Plato, but but they would precede the New Testament. Or origin for that matter either. Yes, origin. Origin has some breaks, so. So they start slowly. Yeah, but I haven't seen an original origin manuscript, so I can't speak specifically to that. The only origin texts I've seen are 19th century editions of his work in Greek. All right. Well, let's go. Did you have something, Mary? Yes, you, th- that's exactly right. So that's a good way of expressing it. Thank you. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we take the opportunity to give you thanks, not only for the word that you have communicated to John, but for all the words you've communicated to your servants from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left to ourselves. You have revealed yourself, disclosed yourself, identified yourself in manifold ways so that we may lay hold of you by faith, trust and love you by grace, above all, enjoy your promised blessings by fruition. We ask, Lord, that you will bless our time through this summer. Will you be with us in strength and in health? Will you encourage our minds and souls with your living word and written word? And we will give you all the praise and the glory through our dear and suffering and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, your eternally beloved, eternally begotten Son. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.